Um, last weekend, I was outside. I was talking to Laura on the phone. The girls were asleep, and uh, I don't. You may have been to our house, but we have this nuisance at our house, and her name is Chester. She is a stray cat that um, I I cannot stand cats. If you are a cat person, uh, you can be a Christian, but I doubt your salvation. That's all I'm gonna say. Um, uh, I cannot stand cats, but. The reason is, is that um, Chester walks up out of nowhere with a bird in its mouth. And it wants to snuggle me like cats do. As I'm talking on the phone, I take a picture of it. This is the grossest thing ever. I take a picture of it, send it to Laura. We can't believe it. I'm sitting there going, this is foul and this is disgusting. And then, to my surprise, which I'm pretty sure was a mockingbird or a pigeon, it just flies out of Chester's mouth. Not dead at all. And I was just sort of sitting there going, that was the most bizarre thing that has ever happened to me in the sense of like my, my storyline with Chester. He's gotten into our car. He spent the night there. The next morning it smelled like cat pee. I mean, this cat has been my demise. And I'm ready for the whatever folks from the county to come out and come, you know, pay Chester a visit, if you know what I'm saying. So anyways, my point is, is this. I was looking at Chester going, you are a foul creature. Why do you do the things that you do? And then it struck me. Chester puts cats in his mouth because that's what cat, I'm sorry, birds in his mouth, not other cats. He might do that. It wouldn't surprise me. But Chester puts birds in his mouth because that's what cats do. They have an instinct that makes them want to eat mice and birds. And then they have this really soft step that you can't hear them. And then they pounce. And then they have these these paws with retractable claws that can strike a bird out of nowhere, stun it, and then they can grab it in their mouth. And I'm trying to get across the point saying that like, Chester does that stuff because of what he is. He has these inbred instincts. He has it in his DNA that this is what he or she, we don't know its gender, does because it's a cat. In other words, I put it like this. Chester does what she, he, it does because of what she, he, or it is. It acts out of, it relates, I'm driving this point home, out of what it is. And I want to begin to suggest to you that we see that all the time in the life of humans as well. Some oil tycoon who's rich as all get out gives $10 million to start an orphanage over in Africa. And we go, they're such a good person on the inside, therefore it shows on the outside, that sort of thing. What's well, interesting that the Bible actually says that nobody, no human being that's ever lived on the face of this earth is actually good at all. That's another sermon for another time. But I do have a question for you. Have you ever thought about what makes up or what God is? Like, who is He at His essence, at His core? What, what is He made of? And the psalmist is going to tell us that what he is actually affects the way that he lives out, the way that he bears out, the way he relates to people. 
Chester to the cat, I swipe you, I eat you because I'm cat. God, the psalmist says, at His core is good. And therefore He relates in love. That's what the psalm is going to talk to us about. So I've titled this, The Boundless Love of God. And I want you to begin to see that this, Psalm 103 is epic. It is one of the highest, most beautiful pictures of God's goodness in the entire Bible. If this were a baseball game, we would be looking at the bottom of the ninth and the seventh game of the World Series with the winning run at the plate. I mean, that's the sort of, that's, the, that's how packed tight this psalm is with high moments, okay? And it's going to tell us this. That the psalm assumes that the infinite, always and forever goodness of God is going to dispose itself in love, in care. And since this is who God is, Psalm 103 is going to show us how He relates to people. I've mentioned it. It comes to us in love. So we're going to look tonight at the love of God. Something that is so central to the Christian storyline. And what are we going to see? I think we're going to see these three things. First of all, we're going to see the depth from which it comes. Secondly, the length to which it goes. And you can see it there on your sheet as well. The change, or the radical change that it brings. So, the depth from which it comes, the length to which it goes, and then actually what happens to the person upon whom it meets. Does that make sense? That's where we're going tonight. Let's look at the first one. They're the depth from which it comes. Now, I'm looking primarily at verses 6 to 8 and 11 to 14 there. So you can turn your eyes there. But I want to suggest to you that this psalm is taking us on a journey into the very heart of God for His people. We get glimpses at the inner workings and motivations of God's very heart. And do you see there to begin with in verse 8 where David tells us that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Again, we see this show, this, this, this phrase rather, show up in verses 11 and 17, this language of steadfast love. Now, why does David mention this? And I suggest to you this, because this is what is at the very heart of God. Like Chester's instinct to catch birds, God at his essence is a God who loves. How do we know this? Back in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, Moses is the character. And he has said to God, God, I want to see you for who you are. He says, Moses, if I show you who I am, you'll die. You can't stand in my presence, but I'll do this. I'm going to pass in front of you. And as I'm passing in front of you, I'm going to put my hand over your face. And you'll get a catch. You'll, You'll get my wake. You get to see my backside, so to speak. And so in Exodus chapter 34... He passes, he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. He passes past him. And as he's passing beside him, do you know what he says? God himself proclaims his name like you would Will, like you would Michael. I'm Ryan. This is what God says about his name. Are you ready? God passes by and he says, do you know who I am, Moses? My name is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What is David doing? David is saying that God's love for His people is not something outside of Himself, but it is something that's 
deep down in his very... In fact, it is his name. And you can't get closer to something than the name of a person. But there's more. What does this love actually look like? And I want... This is going to be an illustration to kind of highlight something that words are hard for me to express. The psalmist mentions there in verses 13 and 14 something in particular. Do you see it? He uses the word compassion. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Now, this isn't compassion like you and me often think about it. Like, you know, oh, I need to give this guy five bucks because he's asked me for it. Okay? Something like that. It's far more rich. It's far deeper. It's a concept that has the idea of giving of someone seeking the benefit, the flourishing of somebody who is helpless, who is completely defenseless. Here is the uh, compassion that a father has with its child. Now, you guys know, if you know me, we know that we have two small babies. And I'm getting to get a sense of this, that when little Audrey or Evangeline is crawling and she bops her head on the floor because she trips over her little onesie or whatever, and she begins to cry and has a little rug burn on her forehead, you know, I am moved for compassion for her. I go, pick her up. She's wailing. I hold her in my arms. And, you know, I say, did you bop your head? I'm sorry. I kiss it and I rub it and I hold her there until she quits crying. I get a little sense of that. It goes deeper though than that. Do you know why? The word that is used there for compassion shows up in two other places in the Old Testament. And I'm going to tell you about one of them. It's in this obscure story in 1 Kings chapter 3. What is going on? Two prostitutes. Both of them just have a baby. They're born about three days apart. And one of the ladies, who I'll call Lady B, she is sleeping with her child by her side. And we're told that she smothers her child accidentally in the middle of the night. The baby dies. And in the middle of the night, Lady B goes to Lady A and tries to pull a switcheroo. So she takes the live child back with her and leaves the dead one there. And the next morning, Lady A wakes up, realizing that her baby's dead, takes a look at it when she's nursing and goes, wait a second, this isn't my child. She walks over to Lady B and says, you've switched our child in the middle of the night. Lady B denies it. And they actually get a hearing before the king, King Solomon. And so Lady A says, this lady has has changed my baby. That is my baby. And Lady B denies it. says, no, it's not. And King Solomon, knowing that nobody else was there, there were no other eyewitnesses, has a plan. And you know what he does? He says, he goes, I'll tell you what, bring me the baby. Now go get me a sword. And because you can't decide whose baby it is, we're going to cut it in half. And we'll give one half of the baby to this lady and the other half of the baby to that lady. And do you know what happens? One of the ladies speaks up and says, by no means, my Lord, don't do it. Give her the baby. It's hers. Which lady do you think it was? It's the baby's mama. out of a deep sense of compassion and love, she would give up her child for her well-being. That's the sort of compassion that God has. That's how deep it comes from, from the very heart of God that God has for His people. 
If you are in Jesus, this is the sort of love that God has for you. That sort of compassion. You don't have children yet. One day God might bless you with it and they're going to bop their head and you're going to pick them up and you're going to rub it and you're going to kiss it and you're going to tell it that everything's going to be okay. And I'm telling you right now, that is what God does for you. It's true. That's how His heart has moved for you. And I want to suggest to you this, that you and me, at every turn, don't believe that. It's the hardest thing in the world to believe that God would actually love us like that. Because we look and we examine our life and we see pain, we see sorrow, we see we're not getting what we want, and we ask what? God, what are you doing? Do you really care for me? And so like I've mentioned before, we begin to read God's character, His heart for us, back through our circumstances. And do you know where that always leaves us? With a God that stinks. With a God that sucks. Because we look at our circumstances and we go, if you really loved me, you would give me X, Y, and Z. And what Psalm 103 says is you're starting in the wrong place. You must begin with the character of God. Seeing Him as infinitely good, as a father loving his child, and then begin to back out and in interpreting your experiences and your circumstances in light of that. And I'm here to tell you that that makes all the difference. Because I would venture to guess that for most of you, your problems in life arise from the fact that you don't believe that God loves you. If you think I'm wrong, let me ask you this. Why is it that your world rises and falls on whether or not He asks you out, whoever He is? Why does your life rise and fall on what you're doing next week? Are you hanging out with the right people at the right beach in the right condo? Are the right people going to be there? And are you going to be in the right crowd? Let me ask you this. Why does it crush you that it's the, almost the middle of March if you're a graduating senior and you don't have a job? I want to suggest to you this. It's because in all those instances, you're not seeing that God's love for you is actually more definitive in your life than some pimply-faced college dude asking you out by some party that you're going to be able to go to, and then lastly, because of some job. I'm telling you, God's goodness surpasses all of those things. And that's what the psalm wants you to begin to see tonight. That He loves you like a father loves his crying child. That's how deep it goes. Secondly, talked about the depth, but how far does it go? Look with me again at the Bible there. If you've got it in front of you or your, or your page, um, I, don't, I think it's printed out there. I'm turning now, looking at basically how far, what are the lengths to which this actually goes? Well, these verses assume that the compassion that we just mentioned comes in a context. In other words, compassion is extended because the party receiving it, y'all, is actually in need. And we need to ask, why then is this compassion extended? The reason is, is that we're going to see, is that this compassion goes out to those, ready? To those folks who can't get it together spiritually, who are morally failures, who can't clean up enough for God. 
It's what the Bible actually uses the language that they're sinners. And one of the things that I pound on week in, week out is that God's love is not for perfect people who have it all together. The grace of the gospel, y'all, comes for people who are what? Hot messes. They don't have it together. They can't get it together. How do I know that? Look at the Bible right there in verse 11 and 12. It goes back even further. Look at verse 10 where he says, He does not deal with us according to our sins. He's not going to do it, but it assumes that there are real sins. Again, He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. There are real iniquities. And then He goes on and says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As much as God is infinitely good, y'all, He is also infinitely just. The two go together. Think about it like this. If you're a good judge, a judge carrying out your task like you ought to, when a man is actually guilty, he has been convinced and shown to be of guilt, for you to pass the sentence not guilty on a man that is guilty, you are not being just and you're not being good. They go together. Where there is real guilt, a good God must judge it. In other words, I want you to see this. That God does not play around with sin. He's not, he doesn't count it a trifling matter. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He actually says, no, it's real. And yes, you and me have committed it. Are you able to do that? I just want to ask, like, straight up, y'all. Are you able to name that about yourself? That you haven't just gotten sideways with God, but that you've actually offended Him. That's sobering. I don't like talking about it. It makes me pit out because I don't want to talk about it with you. But it's what the Bible says. Are you able to name yourself? Here's why it matters. If you cannot come to terms with your sin, the gospel of God's grace, the cross, will matter nothing to you. You will not need a Savior because you're not in a, you have no problems. So all Jesus will be to you is a nice moral teacher. He'll be like Buddha or something like that, but He won't take care of your deepest problem. And so what most people often do is we just deny it, right? The psalm is inviting us to see that. But here's the good news. Do you see, though, it's not just seeing it. It's God going after that person. He comes out after them. And He loves them. My point is very simple. I want you to see that God's love reaches out. The lengths to which it goes is that it goes out to the worst of us. And that ought to encourage you tonight. Let me give you a footnote. If it doesn't, that's a problem. Okay? I'll let you think about why that might be a problem after what I just said. It ought to encourage you that God loves sinners. Right? Think about it like this. My dad, when I was probably 10 years old or something like that, I think I may have shared this before you guys before, I stole a Don Mattingly baseball card from a kid that was younger than me. I wanted the card. It was worth like three bucks, not much at all. But dude, I gypped him off. I, you know, if you traded baseball cards when you were a kid growing up, you know, I got a phone call from my dad. He was like, son, did you did with this kid? I was like, yes, sir. He said, come home right now. My dad was so angry with me. 
And he wore my butt out. He disciplined the snot out of me. And the reason he did it was this. He wasn't just trying to be mean. It's because he knew that he was not going to raise a son who thought it was okay to sell his character out for a mere three bucks. Why, how does this have anything to do with the lengths to which it goes? I'm actually just trying to show you, show you this. That my dad, in that moment, was loving to me. In the sense that he was like, I must stop all that is in you that is killing you. And God will do that with you because He loves you. Now, we haven't really turned our eyes to how yet, and we're going to in just a second. But my point is, I want you to see that God comes out to sinners, and He will actually stop you so that He can rescue you. That's the good news tonight, y'all. I want you to begin seeing that. That that's what's going on here in this psalm. And it's a function, not of God hating you, but of God loving you. If you see something that's killing somebody that you love inside, do you let it go? You don't. If any of you have an addict in your family, you know more than anything, you want to see that which is killing them removed from their life. And that's what God will do for you and me. He will. He will do it because He loves you. Because He loves you. Because He loves you. Well, what's the last thing that we want to look at? We're moving right along. I want you to begin to see Oh wait, I want to say one thing, sorry. This is a money quote. It comes from C.S. Lewis. Listen to this. He says, the Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good. God does not love you and me because we're good. Rather, that God will make us good because He loves us. That's what's at the core of Christianity. I don't know what you think about it, but that's what's at the core of it. That God doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us and then He makes us good because He loves us. The links to which He goes, that's what He does. Lastly, so what happens when God's love actually reaches us? In other words, look with me at verses 11 and 17 and we'll see what David is telling us. He says that His steadfast love does, is for these folks. Do you see it there? Verse 11, he says, for those who fear Him, and the same in verse 17, for those who fear Him, and in 18, for those who do His commandments. So how are we supposed to read this? Why do I ask this? Because if you read this, like most people do, we read it like this. Well, if I fear God, which means in that context, like if I worship Him, if I give Him all, it doesn't mean I'm afraid of Him, I'm cowering like a kid and I keep His commands, keep His covenant, then God will pour out His love on us. In other words, that the grounds or the condition for the saving, steadfast love to reach us is if we do those things. But y'all, listen. That cannot be the proper way to read this text. Why? Well, not to mention all that we just talked about up in point two. Look at this. His steadfast love comes to those in verse 4 to those who are in the pit. To the folks who are dead. The folks who cannot have it together. So to try to read it that if I clean up enough, if I get my act together enough morally, then God will love me is a bad reading of this text. 
So what is he trying to say then? Well, look. He goes on and he says that when God's grace comes to you, something happens. In other words, this fearing and this keeping of God's covenant, it happens because something has happened within you. And what is that? It's this. That God's grace has come to you and it changes you. It makes you a man or a woman who actually begins to love Him. Who begins to actually delight in Him. That your heart is changed once and for all to begin to know and to love and enjoy God. That's what he's getting at here. But he wants you to notice that this has not happened easily. In other words, this doesn't just happen and it's nice for you. It actually often hurts. Think about it like this. If you're a friend or if you ever um, have read C.S. Lewis's um, Narnia Chronicles, you remember one of these most famous quotes. Two girls, the sisters Lucy and Susan, are first learning about the character Aslan, who is this lion, sort of God-type figure. And Lucy, the younger of the two sisters, comes to Mr. Beaver, talking beaver in the land of Narnia, and she starts to ask him a question. And I just want to read what C.S. Lewis writes. Is this Aslan a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not, I tell you. He is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mr. Beaver, if there is anyone who can keep, who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I use this illustration because I want you to know that when you begin to deal with the utter goodness and love of God, it will necessarily be messy for you. You will feel unsafe. Why? Because God is going to come into your heart and He is going to begin to reorder the furniture therein. And it's going to hurt. Think about it. If you've loved all the wrong things for all of your life, it's going to actually hurt when He starts rearranging your heart. So it's going to feel unsafe in that way. That's what He's trying to get at. You see, here's what most of us think. Most of us think, and we're scared to death, that if we take God seriously, He will ruin your life. Think about that. Most of us think that if I begin to take God seriously, He's going to wreck my life. Now I just want to ask you, is that consistent at all with a God who's good? How many of y'all have ever heard the Lord's Prayer? You know, give us this day our daily bread, right? Most of us think that if we pray that, God's going to give us the crumbs, stale, moldy bread. But why do we believe that? What is that a failure to believe? It's a failure to believe that God is actually good. Would I give my daughters moldy bread when they ask for food? 
Heck no. How much more would God never do something like that for us then? The point is, is that this comes in and it changes us. It reaches into the depths of our being and it changes the worst of us, y'all, into creatures that are made good, that are made beautiful. That's what he's getting at. There is no other category for the person that can keep his covenant, that can fear him other than the one that's been changed. That's what David assumes right there. Well, listen, we've talked about the depths of God's love, the length to which it goes, and what it inevitably does to those whom it reaches. Have you ever wondered, though, how God can actually do this? Remember how we spoke about God being just? And because He was just, He had to deal with sin in order to be compassionate? Well, look again at verse 10. This is where we're going to close. Did you notice what it did not say? It did not say, He deals with us according to our sins. He repays us according to our iniquities. It says He does not. But if He was really just, don't you understand that He must do that? If you're really guilty, if you have real iniquity, for God to be just, He must what? He must punish you. He must deal with you. But do you notice what the text says? It says He doesn't do that. How in the world can God do that? It's because this psalm looks forward to a man named Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 about Jesus this. He says that He would go to the cross and that when He did, that when He did this, it says that God was just that He dealt with our sins on Jesus. And that He justified us because of Jesus' good record. Y'all, my point is this. The reason that He does not deal with us according to our sins is because He deals with Jesus according to your sins. And the reason that He doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities is because He deals with Jesus according to our iniquities. And that's the great hope of the Gospel. God does not deal you out what you deserve. He dealt it all out on Jesus. And there is nothing more that you can do to get God to be happy with you if that's the case. Let me put it like this. If you're in Christ, God loves you no more. He cannot love you any more than He does right now. You can't do anything. You can't be nicer to make Him love you more. But the other good news is this. He will never love you less than He does right now too. You cannot screw up your life such that you will remove God's love and affection from you. That's the image of what the compassionate Father is all about. Y'all, this is great news for you you and me. That He does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's what's true of you. Let me pray.